This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The issue of immigration has not only been a topic of heightened conversation here in the United States, but also around the world. Over the last few years, there have been thousands of people migrating from parts of Africa or from the war-torn Syria, among other countries, to various parts of Europe. Many migrants and refugees have died on dangerous routes, including the Mediterranean Sea, or ended up living in camps without enough support. There's also been a crisis in parts of Central America, as many flee dangerous gangs and economic upheaval in hopes of getting asylum here in the United States. A workshop to be held here at the University of Pennsylvania on February 22nd will focus on ways to address and improve the standards and regulations governing those moving between borders, whether as visitors, workers, entrepreneurs, refugees, or victims of trafficking, amongst others. It's all part of the Model International Mobility Declaration, which looks to set global standards for these people and fill in key gaps in international law. With more, we're joined in studio by Michael Doyle, who's a visiting scholar here at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House. He is also a university professor at Columbia University and a former assistant secretary general for uh, policy planning at the United Nations. Michael, great to meet you. Thank you for coming in today. Dan, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to speak with you and your guest on this program. Thank you. So what are the main reasons why we, we really don't have kind of a global policy in place right now? Well, we have some architecture to govern the movement of people across borders, but it's limited. It's too narrow. We have a convention for migrant workers, and we have a very powerful refugee convention. The Migrant Workers Convention establishes all sorts of standards and rules, but there are no real ratifications Mm -hmm. from countries of, of destination which means that it's not really protecting migrants who are moving to countries where they want to work. So it's not effective. The Refugee Convention in 1951 is a landmark of human rights law, but it's much too narrow. You have to prove persecution, and it has to be on race, religion, and a few other very narrow categories. It just doesn't cover someone fleeing for their life. So we need better... We need a better regulatory framework for the variety of ways in which people move across borders, not just migrants, not just refugees. So how do you think we we need to start to go about that? Well, we need to start to think about it. We need to do some hypothetical design issues. And 30-plus scholars from around the world have gotten together and tried to picture what a more comprehensive system would look like. And some of the key ideas is that we need to go beyond migrants and refugees. We need to include visitors, you know, business visitors on a, in a conference in London or Philadelphia for a long weekend. Right. We need tourists. We need students. We need temporary workers, not just full-time workers. And we need to expand the notion of what a refugee is to somebody who's fleeing for their life. So we need a comprehensive convention. It needs to be cumulative because you only need a few protections if you're a visitor, and you mm-hmm. need a whole lot if you're a refugee. And it needs to be differentiated. You know, there are different needs of each of these different 
groups moving across borders. I, I think the distinction you just kind of led to when you're talking about something for a vacationer or mm-hmm. something for you know somebody that's you know seeking asylum. Yes. A lot of people would say, well, how are are they the same to begin with? Yet there are mm-hmm. some similarities that yes. obviously come into play. The similarity is that they both crossed a border, yeah. an international border, and so they're no longer under the jurisdiction of their home government and can't rely upon its immediate protection. All one needs as a business visitor or a tourist is to make sure that one has basic protections of the law, that one has uh, freedom of thought, so no one's going to try to brainwash you. And you need uh, um, access to emergency medical care if you get run over by a car. Not much more than that, nor do you have much of a claim to any more than that. But as you move from being a visitor through a tourist, through a student, through a worker, through a forced migrant or a refugee, you need progressively more protections because you are vulnerable and can't go home to your own government to have them taken care of. So we want a cumulative uh, system that covers the minimum and works up to the maximum right. so that the variety of people who move across borders have a have a, have a you know, a comprehensive system on which they can rely. So it, the conference here on the 22nd will be trying to do what? It's trying to sketch out what that should look like. We have a draft that will be discussed on, on the 22nd, and we brought in some really first-rate experts from around the world. You know, from here at Penn, they, they include Professor Simmons, uh, Professor uh, Chang, Professor Paoletti, and then from more broadly, we have the director, former director general of the IOM, uh, Bill Swing, the former High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, all to discuss what these rules, regulations, protections should look like. Uh, students, obviously, with us being here at the University of Pennsylvania, obviously, mm-hmm. is, is something that we have discussed mm-hmm. uh, with a variety of people, and specifically here at mm-hmm. the University of Pennsylvania, but other institutions around the country. And again, with some of the changes that we've seen in policy mm-hmm. currently here in the United States, there is quite a bit of concern among mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. about, one, being able to get here to the United States, but two, being able to go home and then potentially come back to still do their work if they need to. Right. You know, uh, you know I'm just speaking here as uh, an ordinary citizen rather than so much of an expert. You know, we in the United States invest a great deal more money beyond what students pay in tuition in their education. You know, right. the average cost of a Penn education or a Columbia education is a lot higher th- than tuition, despite how high tuition is. It's not unreasonable that we as Americans would want to take advantage of that yeah. and say to these graduates, if you want to work in this country for a period of time and we need your work, that is, you're in a scarce uh, skill area or a scarce profession, then let's make that available. And I think it's a very reasonable idea. Uh, a number of American politicians have suggested that a work visa should be stapled to your graduation diploma, <laughs> so to speak, or, or an application for a work visa right. because it could be a great advantage to the U.S. in the long run. The key thing is that we need to find workers who are filling gaps that are unlikely to be filled by American citizens. And there are plenty such gaps out there today that could effectively be filled by foreigners. One of the things you discuss in the work that you've done surrounds international law. And Mm -hmm. obviously, I think 
I think the expectation by a lot of people is that what law, what is law here in the United States may not very well be law in right. a part of Europe or a part of Africa, wherever you might be around the globe. And I think maybe that's one of the really the crucial areas is to be able to try and get some unison right. between a lot of these countries so that mm. the expectation for somebody who is a visitor of some kind mm. should be the same. Exactly. These are designed to be floor principles. Floor protections, so that if you're a business visitor overseas, you're not going to be arbitrarily arrested because you showed up. Right. Or if you get run over by a truck, they're going to say, oh, you're not part of our medical system, bleed in the street. We need some basic protections that many countries already have today, but not all. And that applies across these different categories. Uh, if you're a student, for example, you have an obligation to provide accurate information to the schools to which you apply. If you're accepted and you're paying your tuition, you should have a right to access to classes on a similar basis to those of nationals who are applying for classes. And at the end, you should get a transcript if you've earned your credits. Mm -hmm. you know? and these are just basic protections that are absolutely ordinary and sensible, but that don't exist everywhere. And this is just saying, here's what the floor should look like. If anyone wants to build upon that in the, each different national circumstance, fine, of course. Right. But here's what the floor should look like, and, and that's the purpose of it. And, and you refer to this, I saw this in a couple of interviews you've given, as somewhat of a realistic utopia. Yes. What I mean by that is that this is a utopia. That is that uh, governments are not going to turn around on Saturday, the day after our workshop, and say, yes, we're going to sign up to this. <laughs> this is pushing the right. envelope right. of protections and rules you know, the authors think it'll take us about 10 years to get some significant traction behind these kinds of ideas. Right. The key thing is that they push the envelope for protections, but it's realistic. This is not pie in the sky. We're not advocating, however nice it might be for some people, that the world have no borders. The world needs borders. Yeah. We need to have spaces in which um, nations, citizens can work out their own life in their own terms and invest in ways that they we'll see most of the benefits go to their fellow nationals. That's completely legitimate. But we also think that we should push these protections further because countries, all countries, in the long run will benefit from this. We'll all be somewhat better off. To give you an example, uh, we want to attract tourists. Uh, the international tourist industry is $4.6 or so trillion dollars worth of global GDP. Yeah. And a regime that provides better protections for tourists across the board is likely to see more tourism take place. Right. And so we will all benefit in the long run. And, and I think that's what we see pop up in a variety of different instances. And thinking back a year or two, uh, when we started to see more conversation between the United States and Cuba, mm -hmm. one of the things that they wanted to really try and, and improve yes. was the ability to have tourists come to Cuba and, and really benefit from, from going to that island, island country. And exactly. And in order for that to be realistic, the tourists have to have some reasonable expectation that their basic rights are going to be protected, their contracts are going to be honored, and that they're getting information that is realistic and accurate about what they're going to experience. And if they don't, they have some access to the courts. If yeah. you show up and there's no hotel that you're supposedly staying in, you need to get your money back. So a basic framework of law 
is necessary in order to encourage the kind of win-win growth that we can expect from the global economy. We're joined here in studio by Michael Doyle, who's a visiting scholar here at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry Worldhouse. He's also a university professor at Columbia University. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, then how then do you think, and one of the other areas you, you talk about is employment. Mm-hmm. And obviously with people coming to the United States or coming to another country, they their goal is, by in many cases, by going to that country, as long as they're not a, a vacationer, is to try and live there and try and work. Right. How do you see this type uh, of legislation, this type of mindset, this type of framework mm-hmm. impacting employment? The, the key thing is that uh, countries should take advantage of the fact that it is – um, somewhat predictable where a country is going to be experiencing uh, job gaps. That is where there is going to be employment needs that are not going to be fulfilled by nationals. It's never going to be 100% accurate. But right. within some orders of magnitude, we can guess where there are likely to be labor shortages, uh, given the willingness of citizens to work in some areas or other areas and the income levels that go with them. Uh, Given that, we should be issuing visas to fill that demand so that uh, we can bring in people who want to do the work, and once they're there, that demand is filled so that the demand for foreign labor is significantly less. It creates regular orderly pathways for migration. That's very important. And most countries should do that. There should be something like a visa – Um, a labor visa platform where Mm -hmm. countries can post the kinds of vacancies that they think they're likely to have on various skill categories, like the H-1B kind of visa program. And most countries should do the same thing. And they should fill that in a regular orderly way. We also suggest, you know, in a more innovative way in in this convention, that some of those people could well be people who are currently refugees in various places of the world. They may be in Lebanon, or they might be in Uganda, or they might be in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And once they've fully met the vetting standards of a national government, such as the ones the U.S. currently and historically has imposed, they should be given priority if they have the right skill set to fill those labor needs. Right. So you get a two-for-a-win situation. That is, we're filling labor needs and we're helping people resettle from what otherwise might be very difficult asylum conditions in other parts of the world that um, everyone would benefit from. 85% of the world's refugees live in the developing countries, yep. not in the U.S. Or, or Europe or elsewhere. And that's a significant financial burden on those countries. And some of them could be very effective workers here in the U.S. And and I would think from a global perspective that what we've seen, unfortunately, especially with the the migrants coming from Africa going to Europe Mm -hmm. and and obviously the loss of life that we saw in there, uh, that those are the type of situations that obviously we want to avoid, Mm -hmm. but obviously hopefully spur on the want to change some of this this Mm -hmm. policy as well. Yes. I think, you know, in the long run, um, most European economists think there's going to be a demand for non-European labor working in Europe. Yeah. Uh, That's a widespread consensus. On the other hand, unless the African economies uh, take off even faster 
than they've been doing recently in terms of economic growth. And governance improves so yeah. that there's security and, and the effective provision of public services. Then there's going to be a lot of push factor coming from Africa too. Add on top of that the pressures of climate change, that is drought and things such as that, and that's going to increase. So that if we could have a better uh, safe, regular, orderly labor market from Africa to Europe, both sides would significantly benefit. Yeah. That's what needs to be done. Right now, we have demand in Europe, and we have restrictions on entry in Europe, and we have desperate people trying to get across the Mediterranean, and that's right. a prescription for the deaths that we see in that in that in that particular. Now, scene. you mentioned climate change being a factor in in this mm-hmm. want to move mm-hmm. from from various locations. Right. How significant of a part is it to this entire mm-hmm. into this entire conversation? It, it is a significant part. It's it's one of the factors that can drive someone to move who otherwise would not want to move. But because their farm is disappearing into dust, they have no choice but to move. And so it's a driver that is incredibly powerful. It's survival, basically. So that certainly does exist. Most of that movement in the future will take place within countries, often from rural areas to cities or one part of the country to another. But some of it, it's likely also to be international. And we need to be ready for that. That is, we need to be ready to make sure that we identify ways to make that as orderly as possible so that all sides win. And we need to share whatever burdens there will be uh, to provide assistance for those who have to move to save their lives. And we can't just leave this as a developing country problem. It can't be the case that 85% of that burden is borne by developing countries. There needs to be financial assistance from the wealthy countries to make that possible so so it's dignified and and sustainable. And there probably needs to be more resettlement, too, from developing countries to wealthier countries to meet uh, this this need to share the burden. You you mentioned governance. I want to go back to that for Mm -hmm. a second. And and you have certain expectations as you move along with this process. Mm -hmm. With some of the issues that we see in governance in other countries around the globe, you hope that change is coming. But I guess to a degree, you have to temper the expectations for right now yes. when you think about places like like Venezuela and, and Brazil in, yes. in, in South America and other countries in, in Africa with some of the regimes that, that are running those countries right now. Mm. Obviously, again, you hope to see change that will positively affect right. the outcomes for people in those countries. But there has to be a, that, that time period yes. in terms of seeing that build out. Yeah, no. Except Venezuela is quite significant in this regard. You know, there, there are approximately three million people who have fled Venezuela uh, over the past few years as their economy has melted down and as the level of oppression has gone up. Uh, Many of these people do not qualify under the 1951 convention as uh, refugees fleeing specific uh, persecution directed at them. They're mostly uh, um, casualties uh, that are collateral to the collapse of the the economy and the actions of some of the police force and others that have proved to be pretty violent. 
But that's three million people. They're now in Colombia, some are in Brazil, some are in the other neighbors, and they've generously opened their borders. Sure. Yeah. Uh, there should be assistance uh, to help Colombia and others provide uh, uh, livelihood for these persons. The long-run solution, of course, is reform within Venezuela that allows its people to return. Yeah. But this could take a while. You know, the typical displacement in the world today is about 18 years. Yeah. Now, we're certainly hoping Venezuela will not be such <laughs> yes. a long displacement. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look at uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Syria. all of these places— yeah. No one thinks that there's going to be a quick resolution of uh, stability and growth in those countries that would allow everyone to come back home. Michael Doyle joining us here in studio, a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House, also a university professor at Columbia University. So you, you hold this seminar, this uh, these meetings on the 22nd. Right. From that, mm-hmm. what is the goal? What is the hope? What is the next step in the process? That's a really good question. That is, there's no expectation that this, you know, model convention or model declaration that is the summary of it is immediately going to be taken up. Yeah. So basically, we're trying to start a, uh, uh, just as call it a, a policy movement that yeah. is to uh, encourage, you know, possibly NGOs. Um, Amnesty International would be a wonderful candidate to do that. Cities. Cities tend to be extremely progressive on questions of immigration. The typical mayor, all he or she cares about is having a citizen abide by the law, send their kids to school, make sure they get vaccinations, pay taxes, all of that. And so they are much more practical when it comes to the questions of immigration. And then maybe somewhere down the road, some governments will, will see this as an issue that they can take up and use our convention as raw material to begin to create a framework. The Landmines Convention, to give you an example, was was developed in that way. A yeah. group of NGOs you know, put around ideas, showed what it might look like to provide better protections from landmines. Eventually, years in, the government of Canada picked it up, and we now have a Landmines Convention. Yeah. Our moonshot is that kind of a hope. We're realistic enough to know it's not going to happen soon, given the governments we have in the world today. But we want to do the intellectual work now so that sometime when the political alignments are more conducive, they'll have some material they can draw upon to start that process. How much do you think then your former body, the United Nations, Mm -hmm. has to play a role in this process? Because you mentioned some of this is really going to take hold at at the grassroots level. Right. It, it, you know, eventually uh, it would be useful for this to show up in the General Assembly to develop a draft convention there to cover these kinds of rules, regulations, and standards. But that's not going to happen until a number of countries see the value in it. Right. And that process is going to be governed predominantly by NGOs, cities, uh, state governments, for example, or provinces around the world. That's going to be the main driver. The job of the academics now is to help make this coherent, and that's what we've been working on and what we'll continue to work on in the Friday workshop. And then I would guess part of the hope is also that some of this work will help reduce some of the criminal activity that goes along in some of these instances, trafficking obviously being one of the concerns in in, in different parts of the world as well. Yeah, We have to have cooperation on trafficking. It's a horrible crime that victimizes uh, the most vulnerable 
And uh, that's included in this convention, some standards for that. But the key thing is to get the entire regime, that is the entire set of regulations for mobility, working better. Uh, Everything from visitors through refugees because there are synergies amongst them. And if we have that kind of an effective regime, uh, we will be able to deal with the problems that arise. And there are bound to be problems in the long run. So is your expectation, and it's seemingly, I, I think, the answer to this is yes, but is your expectation that mobility as a as a concept is going to continue at the rates that we see right now and maybe even at a greater rate moving forward? Human beings have always moved. You know, we've moved for opportunities. Sure. We've moved for curiosity, the whole range of things. That's going to continue. Uh, well, I think it's probably going to grow, uh, not in overwhelming ways. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. run between 2 and 4% of the global population has moved in their lifetime across a, across a border. Uh, it's probably going to stay within that range, but it's certainly not going to go down given what we see. Or if it does go down, it's going to have immensely negative human consequences. You know, if uh, the Mediterranean is absolutely closed to movement from Africa to Europe, if our southern borders are absolutely closed to any, we're all going to suffer, and especially those who need the opportunities of a new life. So specifically with the United States, then, with the 50 states that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, brings together our country, Mm -hmm. how much of it does does it become a, a, a city level issue, a state level issue, but obviously knowing that part of this is also going to be a federal level issue. That's exactly the challenge. It's all three. The federal government controls our borders. That's their responsibility. But uh, cities deal with policing, schools, health care. States deal with education. And uh, immigrants uh, are, are part and parcel of all of those different levels of government. Right. In our ideal world, an immigrant is somebody who comes in with permission and a visa and settles in and immediately starts contributing to their home communities. And that's the ideal we should keep in front of us. The United States is a, is a country built by immigrants over yeah. the centuries, and this is something that we should want to continue. It almost seems like that, that at times that this becomes another instance of, uh, to a degree, a public-private partnership mm-hmm. that can really build itself out, whether it be here in the United States or, or other countries as well. Yeah, I should have mentioned that, because in addition to cities and NGOs, the private sector can play a real role here. And there are a number of companies that have already stepped up to say that we want a world that's safe, orderly, and regular. Yeah. We want to be able to recruit from the best people wherever they happen to be. Uh, and they have a stake to, in all of this. And there are a number of companies, you know, I can think of IKEA, for example, that have stepped up on the refugee issue. So has a Japanese company called Uniqlo. They're involved. And that's just two of the many companies who said that we want to operate in a world that is uh, uh, available so that we can sell our goods everywhere and recruit our laborers following national labor law, but where needed across borders. And that kind of an attitude is increasingly prevalent in business and can be a very progressive element of solving these issues. Great meeting you. Thank you for coming in. My pleasure, Dan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 